It was not your regular broadcast television where everything has to be fast paced and you have to solve it within a half an hour. It was the visual novel that David had said. And the pacing of it, I'll never forget at the end of watching the first episode, I turned to Andre and Sonia and went, damn, I hope you save your money because this shit is getting canceled. I was like, damn, man, I thought I was going to be on a show that would last a little while. And little did I know, 15 years later, it would still be uh, a seminal part of uh, American television history. That was Wendell Pierce, the voice of the bunk, and you're going to be hearing more of him throughout this episode. Hi, I'm Dave. And I'm Kobe. And you're listening to The Wire Stripped, where we go back and rewatch every episode of HBO's The Wire. And along the way, we're going to be hearing from the cast, crew, superfans, and of course, you guys. So here's our chat that we recorded about Season 1, Episode 2, The Detail. When you walk through the garden... You gotta watch your back Well I beg your pardon Walk the straight and narrow track When you walk with Jesus He's gonna save your soul Just gotta keep the devil Way down in the hole so this episode is where, yeah, where the gang get together, like like the Avengers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Except like, they're all shit. They're all shit and people. They work in a basement. <laughs> <laughs> and again, again, this is like one of the episodes, you still don't know what's going on, but we're going to talk you through it as well we can and then have a bit of a chat about what kind of, uh, what happens in it. Yeah, man. Uh, the first kind of storyline is focus on the cop sides. This is where the, the team, the de- known as the detail, isn't it? The detail are... Is the is the group assembled from different parts of the police force that pulled together for this one big case? The worst of the worst. The worst of the worst. This, <laughs> this career case. <laughs> career case. They, they arrive at their new offices, so they've kind of been stuck down in the basement next to the what's it called the the boiler system, basically. Yeah, there's literally like construction workers coming in and out of there. It's <laughs> so great. <laughs> so we, we kept, that's people we met before, and we have a few new people. Uh, Pres Belusky. Um, a first appearance of Lester Freeman. Oh, yeah. Magnificent guy. We've got a couple of jokers in the form of uh, Polka Mahone. And also Sant'Angelo um, is uh, someone else who features at this point, who we meet for the first time. And then we get Sidna a bit later on in the episode. So what, what happens with the cop side of, of this side of this story? Yeah, so I guess, um, we, well, they, they, they come to their new offices. Yep. Uh, there's an incident where Prez Belusky fires his, uh, his gun into a, into a wall. Which initially, <laughs> which immediately signifies Prez Belusky as an idiot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like a, a world-class idiot. Yes. Like right. he's just a, a genius at being an idiot. <laughs> I love it. And he meets the rest of the guys, Herc and Carver, and they already, already Daniels is pissed off at his team. Yeah. At this point. And so Daniels has to start going to grease some wheels yeah. to try and get a better team. And then he ends up with, uh, what's the guy's name? Sidna. Sidna, yeah, yeah. So Sidna's sort of his, uh, after a lot of begging and stealing, he, he says, I'll keep Presbelewski, but we've got to get Sidna. Yeah. So I love all this stuff. I love all the negotiations. The politics. Yeah, yeah, the negotiating. Because this is the kind of stuff that happens. You know, in, in, in most office environments, there's 
there's you know there's weaker team members uh, absolutely there's people who've just been in their job for years or there's don't give a shit so they're someone's daughter or son and in this case son-in-law and so we over at the high rises we see sort of two uh the co- all the cops are down there but they're there for different reasons so we see kima and uh herc and carver yep. are uh, collating some intel with uh with bubbles and an ingenious red hat system so the hat trick is the hat trick yeah the hat ah, trick. nice <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, in the previous episode, in episode one, you get to meet Bubbles, and he he becomes an informant, a CI for for Kima Greggs, and this is where we first, this is where we see his ingenious kind of way into helping them with using a red hat, where he puts a red hat on top of anyone who's anyone in the in the streets, basically. Yeah, and Bubbles is smart. Bubbles is is super is is such a cool guy, Bubbles, isn't he? Yeah, but like he's street smart, but he's also like just he, very intelligent. Yeah. Bubbles is lovely. Um, slash a heroin addict. Hello, I am Izzy Lawrence. I'm a podcaster, presenter of the British Museum member cast, uh, the Z-List, Deadlist podcast, Seti Sop, so many podcasts, it's ridiculous. And um, I'm also a stand-up comedian, and I do a bit of work for Radio 4. What's really great about Bubbles is how good a performer he is. And he's an amazing, like, just being able to get that red hat on the right people. It's, I mean, the bull's on the man. And he's just doing, and he's somehow, he's a good guy, but he's just in a situation where he is, you know, he needs, he needs his dope. And if he doesn't get his dope, he is, um, yeah, it, that's not an option for him. The fact that he risks quite a lot helping out the police and at the same time, he does it with such ease. You know, the way he's able to just switch it on and switch it off just shows you his potential really and the sort of tragedy of the fact that he is where he is because of his uh, addiction he's partly motivated by his drug but it is also the revenge for what happens to his mate after which I, I don't know if it's revenge or if it's just revenge because he feels guilty because the reason that guy got beat up was his own fault for teaching him a stupid trick which doesn't work tea does not work you can't make you know, banknotes look like tea. And it's only the fact that Bubbles is such a good actor and is so able to distract and confuse that he gets away with it, whereas his mate does not have those skills. He's just, you know, they're just sort of street rat. I mean, with Bubbles, you just love seeing that humanity aspect of of somebody addicted to drugs and just still struggling to not give up. I'm Jonathan Abrams. I'm the author of All the Pieces Matter, the inside story of The Wire, you know, trying to find a reason to get up every day and, and do better than he did the day before. And I think once you once you break it down, you know, that's what we're all trying to do, right? Do better than the day before. And you see that struggle with, with bubbles uh, daily. And you see how, how smart he is and how how witty he is in his rapport with, with Kima. And, you know, you He's he's not a drug dealer or he's not a drug addict first. He's a, he's a person first. That's that's a really good character to to portray in this world, isn't it? Because you have him, Bubbles, who knows he's a really smart guy. You could feel he could be anywhere in the world if he just applied himself. Uh, but then you have his protege, I guess Johnny Weeks, who's just who is a bit of a loser, really, isn't he? He's got no kind of nothing really going for him. Yeah, um, he's green. He's green, and I think it's cool to have that portrayal of people on the streets people who are down and out aren't necessarily dumb they're just a victim of circumstance in a way yeah he's smarter than most of the cops absolutely yeah and we'll see that in a, in a bit as well um 
McNulton, I said McNulty and Bunk start pursuing that the the case where Gant, the the witness who got shot in the previous episode, they start pursuing that, and that's why they're in the pits. Yeah, and Bunk is sort of I think he's almost humouring McNulty's idea that. Uh, that the witness has been offed because he was a witness. Yeah. I think Bunk sort of maybe secretly wants this to be a, a bit simpler. Uh, doesn't want to get caught up and get caught up in things. Uh, Rawls and the and the homicide team certainly don't want this to be a, anything big. A drug related homicide. No. Because um, there's a brilliant um, there's a brilliant scene with the commissioner relating to or the deputy commissioner relating to this, where he essentially says, "This better not come back as being related to to the Barksdale." case and the D'Angelo case because that means that we don't have witness protection we won't get any more witnesses coming forward yep. if, if witnesses are being offed oh that's true I hadn't thought about that actually yeah so nobody want. basically they don't want <laughs> nobody <laughs> wants this case to be solved they want it to be it just shows how really the how crooked the system is and how justice doesn't really exist in this world yeah and how stretched they are oh yeah I hadn't thought about that that's awesome um, and that kind of ties in with the fact that this the witness murder gets put on the front page of the Baltimore Sun. Yes. And, and everyone gets pissed off at it. Everyone above Daniels gets pissed off at the fact that it hits the newspaper. Yeah, because it makes them look bad. Um, and everyone assumes that McNulty's done it. Yes. It all goes, <laughs> what the fuck did I do? Uh, yeah, and this is the first instance of that catchphrase. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah he, says it, uh, he says it in this episode for the first time. What the fuck did I do? So they've got lots of the cops um, descend on the descend on the pits, and the McNulty and Bunk are there to kind of pursue D'Angelo. They don't suspect he's the main culprit, but they think that he knows who's killed Gant yep. in this case, and they pick him up and take him to the interrogation room and kind of they use their it's not really a good cop bad cop thing, but they just work their magic <laughs> together, don't they? On, no, on D'Angelo, what is it? Good cop, good cop. Yeah, they're both cop. they're both very kind of friendly to him. They're, they're both yeah, they know exactly what they're doing, and like, you can tell that relationship between um, McNulty and Bunk is forged in the bars. It's forged working the streets together. It's forged in the, ter- in the interrogation room. They just know exactly. They're riffing off each other magnificently in this. Yeah, I only had two auditions, and it was for Bunk. I read by myself one time, and then read with Dominic. You're now hearing from Wendell Pierce, who plays The Bunk. Um, And I was one of the first people to be cast. I think it was a real, it was real kismet that he and I read together. We uh, were very much in the moment. We were self-deprecating, but at the same time serious about our work. Um, uh, Challenged each other uh, at the same time we're very playful with each other. And so the dynamics that we had as actors, we were able to use that also in the, in the characters. Um, I, would always, uh, I would always tease Dominic about, uh, you know, his, uh, his American accent. And he would tease me about my British accent. I would always come on to set and go, hello, governor. Hello. Hello, love. What's on today? You know, it was me, me and Dom. We have a scene, scene here. And all I'm going to do, he said, oh, God, it's awful. You're awful. I said, well, I have to listen to that fake-ass Baltimore accent. You have so shit. You got to deal with me. And so um, we would always. And I had this running joke of, like, why is antiquity always British actors? You know, hello, Autolycus. We're here in the Senate of Greece. And we want to. I was like, they're all from West London. <laughs> you know? so, and so I was always making fun of uh, British actors doing antiquity. And um, being in Rome, but sounding as if they're on 
you know, in Hyde Park. <laughs> Brutus, <laughs> tea. <laughs> so we had a ball. We had a ball. And that, that rapport showed. It really did. They're bullshitting. Absolutely. They're, they're absolute bullshit artists, the two of them. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's just beautiful, all the little details that they sort of work into, um, into their story that they're selling D'Angelo about this. Uh, they they tell him that the witness had uh, had three kids and he was a working man. And yeah, he was two a jobs. Yeah, <laughs> two jobs. And Bunk brings in a picture of his own kids. Yeah, and they they sell D'Angelo on this complete story of this almost this almost fictional saint. Um, <laughs> and then we see D'Angelo sort of br- essentially break down. He, he cracks. Just, he yeah. absolutely cracks. Uh, he cracks hard. And they get him to write a um, a letter to. To the victim, in, in the a way, kids. apologizing. Yeah. yeah, which is a smart move. I mean, the thing of it is, I can't see any reason for that man to be dead. I can't. I mean, hell, you beat us in court. We don't take it personal. Fuck no. We get paid either way. It's not like he did anything real bad. Throwing a couple of hot ones at Pooh Blanchard. I mean, no one's going to miss that motherfucker, right? But you know the man who got killed this time? You know what that poor son of a bitch was? A citizen. Worked every goddamn day of his life. You know that? He would get up every day, go out, and do maintenance work. Then on the weekends, he was driving a cab out to the airport. Two jobs. And he volunteers what little time he has left at his church. Church going man. A Bethel man. A deacon. Two jobs and three kids. Did you know that? Three kids. Young, too. Five, eight, eleven. Crying their little orphan asses to sleep over this shit because they lost their mama some years ago and now they out there on their own. He doesn't believe us. I know you don't believe it. We've been in here a whole two hours telling you what's true in the world and you're gonna sit there like nothing happened? Where my lawyer at? We called him. When he gets here, we'll let you know. I got nothing to say. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for the man, but I ain't got nothing to say. You sorry? You sorry for him, you fucking killed the man. No. Yes, you did. I mean, we don't think that you, uh, you know, shot him or anything. But if you weren't so busy lighting folks up in the high-rise lobby, he ain't coming out of the elevator and seeing it happen. You don't see anything, he doesn't testify. He doesn't testify, those kids have still got a daddy to lean on. Well, why he testify? How the fuck should we know? Well, he ain't had to testify. No, he didn't, but he did. And you still beat the charge, didn't you? Yeah, but that wasn't enough, was it? Not enough to beat the murder. They gotta send a cold message to everyone in the terrace. Fuck the working man. Fuck his kids, that shit don't count. See, that's what I don't get about the drug money. Why can't you sell the shit and walk the fuck away? You know what I mean? When everything else in this country gets sold without people shooting each other behind it. I think that's important because in the first episode, you didn't really understand what D'Angelo's kind of agency was. He's kind of just a bit of a cocky, he's a bit of a cocky shit in the first episode. But this is him becoming humanized. Exactly. And he's even in the first episode, he's kind of boasting about when he sits down in, in or at the Orlando Club. Yeah. Barksdale, he's sort of boasting about offing that guy yeah. and, uh, you know, that he, he popped him and all this. Uh, and in this, we I think towards the end of the last episode, when he sees the repercussions of, of his case mm-hmm. and he, he realizes um, that an innocent man has been murdered. It gets to him. It starts eating away at him, and I think uh, the, his performance in in this scene is is really excellent. And then, we, yeah, we later on meets D'Angelo's, I guess, 
baby mama, as I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as I'd say, um, she's quite materialistic and wants wants D'Angelo to kind of push things forward and provide more for the, for the kids, but he's not really that interested. Yeah. And that kind of shows another chink in in D'Angelo's armor there as well. Yeah, and and it's it's sort of surprising. I'd kind of forgotten about all this because from the first episode, he comes across as this sort of boyish cocky character and then when he, he stro- comes in with a little baby you realise oh he's wait he's a father and he's got sort of a long term girlfriend yeah um, so you, he gets very much dimensionalised in this episode and then storyline three I guess is well it's Herc Carver and, P- and Presbolewski who when they get together oh. when cops get together and drink nothing good can happen oh my god and uh, this so they get together we've already sig- we've already signed out um already indicates that Prez is a massive idiot. <laughs> Herc and Carver are, I guess they're two steps higher than Prez in terms of idiocy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not all Prez's fault, but these guys together just form, a, you know, the three amigos of stupidity, I guess. Well, Herc instigates it, really, it doesn't does. he? You get, so they're drinking together at two in the morning, yeah. which happens a lot throughout this show. This is what cops do in their off time. They get in the car, they drive to either a, 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 an underground car park or the train tracks, <laughs> and then they just just sit on the the boot and sit on the the car and just drink uh, drink cans of, together. Or Jameson's. And drive away. <laughs> or Jameson's, yeah. And in this one, yeah, so they get it in the heads and they need to go to the to the towers and they need to go and show the bad guys what's what. Basically, it's not clear what they're going to actually do there. <laughs> I think that's essentially what it is. Herc, yeah, Herc is he's frustrated, isn't he? Yeah. He's frustrated. I think he's just frustrated in general because he's not... Well, Kima, he sees Kima um, bossing him around. Yep. She's clearly better at her job. Uh, that's grating on him. He feels like the, the, they're in a shit detail, yep. working in a basement. He's not really happy with anything. He just wants to do something, and the only way he knows how to do anything is with sort of muscle. And it forces the other guys... Well, it doesn't really, he doesn't really twist their arms, but they get together and go to the tower block and what ends up being something that they shouldn't have just done it anyway it's just a stupid thing turns into a, a massive clusterfuck oh, it's unbelievable how this plays out and yeah. it's so frustrating isn't it you're just looking at them like you absolute tit <laughs> uh, so they you know they start uh, first of all they they just start humiliating people even Carver who's Carver's the, seems to be the more sensible of one. the three yeah yeah but even he just asks that uh, one of the guys to one of the, the the residents just to drop his pants for no reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Prez is like kicking some guy's laundry around. They're just dicks. Just proper, yeah. And this is what we're talking about in terms of it's not clear who's good and who's bad on either side of the of the game. Basically, yeah. I think these these are generally good guys, but they're just doing stupid things here at this point, and that's. They're just they're, they're humans. They're, they're idiots. humans. They're, it's two a.m. and they're <laughs> drunk, and they went and did a really stupid thing. And of course, the residents they fight back. They fight back, and mainly because Prez pistol whips one guy, one one kid, and, and ends up finding him. Move, shitbird! I ain't doing nothing. Really? What? What? I got nothing what? for you. What? Who are you gonna eye fuck now, huh? Yeah, it's really vicious. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Um, it's interesting to look looking back at this, particularly in today's climate in the U.S., where yeah. the uh, police brutality uh, and Black Lives Matter yeah. and and all these causes which have really come to the fore lately. And I think that's something that's always been at the center of American culture, even going back to Rodney King. But I felt like in two thousand two, maybe it wasn't as as 
prominently in the public no, eye. No, and, and it's something you talked about, touched about on, touched upon in the previous episode where we were talking about the technology that was available then and now. Uh, obviously, nowadays with the advent of the smartphone and everyone having a video camp recorded in the pocket, then these kind of things can be recorded. And this kind of incident certainly would have been recorded. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this would have been straight up on YouTube. Absolutely. All yeah. the residents would have been out the window yeah, the filming it. Yeah. And then actually, well, that's a that's a great point because later Daniels shows up at the scene yeah. and essentially tells them all to get their stories straight. And Presbyluski, he asks Presbyluski what happened why did you pistol whip that guy he says he pissed me off uh, and he says no he didn't piss you off uh, you felt he, threatened he felt threatened exactly yeah. you know you, he, was, he was aggressive he had a bottle and that sort of makes me feel kind of sick and uh, it makes you like Daniels a lot less yes I think as well why he pissed me off no officer Prisbaluski he did not piss you off he made you fear for your safety and that of your fellow officers. I'm guessing now, but maybe. He was seen to pick up a bottle and menace officers Hauk and Carver, both of whom had already sustained injury from flying projectiles. Rather than use deadly force in such a situation, maybe you elected to approach the youth, ordering him to drop the bottle. Maybe when he raised the bottle in a threatening manner, you used a kill light, not the hand of your service weapon to incapacitate the suspect. You fuck the bullshit up when you talk to him, Tommy. I can't fix it. You're on your own. And this is, again, not to label the point, but how well drawn out these characters are. They're not, they're not black and white. They're not simply goody or baddie. They are nuanced. They've got th- different issues they're dealing with. They've got... You know, Daniel's got this massive case on his head and he needs it to go as well as possible and having these three fuckwits... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, dicking about and doing stupid, you know, unbelievably stupid things just doesn't help his case. So his best way out of it is to help them appear like lesser fuckwits, basically. <laughs> exactly, because <laughs> that helps him. Yeah, and I think in Daniel's own way, there's a certain moral code to that because he, they're they're his people and he's protecting his people. And he has even to, yeah. They've done something stupid, but but he's not, as you said, he's not he's not a villain. He he's clearly affected by what happens to this 14 year old boy and the last scene in this episode is him getting that phone call in the middle of the night and you can just see on his face how affected he has been by that news I want to talk a bit about the red hat scene that is actually based on a, on a true on a true scene oh is it yeah so I'm not sure if it was the character that Bubbles is based on That's, um, but that was one method of surveillance at the time where the criminal informant went along and put hats on people of of significance. So that's another kind of true life parallel of, of the wire. And you talk, you want to talk about Paul Mahone? Yeah. So um, I noticed I noticed something in this episode when they were listing off the names of people, and you did it earlier, of the detail. Uh, two of the characters are called Detective Polk and Mahone. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of Irish links uh, in, in the, the wire. wire. Yeah. Uh, you know, McNulty's Irish. There's a lot. They always go to an Irish bar. I'm not sure what David Simon's links are heritage with, with Ireland I don't know probably should have done some research <laughs> isn't that the whole point of what we're doing this uh, didn't look that up um, so if someone could please email in um, and let us know where David Simon is from but um, you might know this but um, in Gaelic Pogue Mahone means kiss my ass Right, um, and so when when they said Polk and Mahone, it sounded suspiciously like 
Pogue Mahone. Kiss my ass. Yeah. Which I, I wonder, is it a coincidence or not? It I, feels a bit deliberate. I think that would have been something that's layered into the show in a, really in a community so. way. So is that something you knew anyway? Just that... Yeah, it's something that uh, everyone in, in, in Ireland learns very early on. Oh, okay. We're forced to learn Irish, and so that's one of the first uh, sort of uh, bad <laughs> bad words you learn in, uh, in, in Gaelic. Just <laughs> kiss my ass. Yeah. Who else is on the detail? This is the first time we see Lester Freeman. Oh, I love Lester Freeman. <laughs> he is such a dude. And I think that's one thing, again, in, in the show, is when, when people first introduced, you don't see the relevance or significance in their introduction sometimes. Because... Freeman, you just see him a couple of times, once in passing, and the second time you see this guy is cuddly, cuddly teddy bear. Was that what Daniel's called? Something him? like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's there making these very intricate doll furniture for for dolls' houses. Yeah. And you just kind of think, who is this? Who's this guy? Yeah, Daniel's has been properly screwed over by his by the people who are on this detail with him. And we will discuss further how how awesome uh, Lester Freeman is. I think, but that just goes to show how how early they do layer in these characters yeah. that, that become become bigger because the people are just background for, for often for whole episodes. Yes. And then they really come to the fore. But they, yeah, he, they really lay the groundwork here. I love Freeman. David Simon's breakthrough was really putting on television the first visual novel. Like we can take the time like a, a, a writer does in a novel to develop characters. And he would always tell us that. I may introduce something in the first chapter that won't play until the eighth chapter. And you have to trust that you may not be as involved as you, as you think, but it'll be a pivotal moment in the story later on. And that took a lot of patience on our part. And uh, it was also the great risk of The Wire. Would audiences hang in there? Would there be this accumulative effect? Uh, and David trusted the intelligence of audiences, uh, the intelligence of their humanity, really, that even though someone is from a disparate part of life, they can still have an impact on you. Because he knew that when you have uh, a story or a world that may be different, the more specific you are, the more universal it becomes. So Corner Boys in Baltimore we're never going to be looked at the same again. And then, you know, the equivalent of someone saying, well, you know, I would have never thought I would see a Bodhi in Brixton, but I know him. I know someone like that. And I may be far removed from America. I'm over here in London. Uh, I may have never gone this far south. Well, Brixton is all hoi polloi now, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> But when we started, you know, I, I would have never gone this far south on the tube. And, but here I am. I actually feel connected. And it doesn't matter. Our humanity connects us that way. And um, he trusted the visual novel and that pacing and that people would put in the time. And it pays off. It's still paying off. People pick up little nuggets now in watching it over and over that they missed in first, second, third viewings. It's so well written. And even just, you know, when they're sitting in the pit, when D'Angelo's been sent back to the pit and they're sitting on the that tatty old sofa, just talking about nuggets. Hey, I'm Gabriella. I am a podcast producer at The Guardian and I'm a really big fan of The Wire. They're eating, someone's eating chicken nuggets and they're like, man, the guy who, who 
invented nuggets must be so rich now and D'Angelo's like that's not how the world works like that guy's still like sitting in the back of the kitchen some other guy's making all the nugget money and the guy who really made the nuggets is like still trying to figure out some like new sauce flavors somewhere and he hasn't seen any of the money and it's just like the the way they turn like the most boring crap into just like just people sitting around and shooting the shit but it being actually really funny many shit is right yo Mm, mm. Mm. Good with the hot sauce too, though. Most definitely. Yo, dude, you want some nuggets? Nah, go ahead, man. Man, whoever did these, yo, he off the hook. What? Mmm. Motherfucker got the bone all the way out the damn chicken. Till he came along, niggas been chewing on drumsticks and shit, getting their fingers all greasy. He said, later for the bone. Snug at that meat up and make some real money. You think the man got paid? Who? Man who invented these. Shit, you richer than a motherfucker. Why? You think you get a percentage? Why not? Nigga, please. The man who invented them things, just some sad ass down at the basement of McDonald's. Thinking of some shit to make some money for the real player. Nah, man, that ain't right. Fuck right. It ain't about right, it's about money. Now you think Ronald McDonald gonna go down that basement and say, hey, Mr. Nugget, you the bomb. We selling chicken faster than you can tear the bone out. So I'm gonna write my clowny ass name on this fat ass check for you. Shit. And the nigga who invented them things, still working in the basement for regular wage, thinking of some shit to make the fries taste better, some shit like that. Believe. This highlights again how good kind of D'Angelo is within the streets and what kind of character he is, because layered through the season, he's the one that tells the younger guys, Poots, Bodie, and, and Wallace how things are and he's the one that kind of takes them away from just being violent thugs and makes them think about things a lot a lot more uh and this is one scene where he's just kind of saying guys think about it he's not the guy the, the guy that made chicken McNuggets is not ronald mcdonald he's <laughs> yeah, not yeah, yeah he's not mr mcdonald he's just some guy who just got some extra chicken breaded it and the boss has said well done you know <laughs> you might have got a day off of work from that but I love Wallace's optimism at the end. Yeah. He finished the scene with, well, he still came up with the idea. <laughs> like, that's, that's, en- that's enough. For and that's him. enough for him, yeah. Still have the idea, though. And I thought, also, this is a key scene to note, is a key point to note. This is where they first get D'Angelo's pager. Oh, yes. And this is, so this is where McNulty uh, comes up with the sort of pager idea, which will become a big, I think a big the, factor later on. The page, this is where he first notices the page. In the, in the interrogation room, they, I think they take it as part of his part of um, arresting him and then they become they come up with the idea of like yes why haven't they got why haven't they got cell phones and that becomes the yeah the infants the kind of nooks of the the rest of the season really there's so many small things that just become part of a bigger jigsaw <laughs> isn't it it's just incredible and i think yeah one thing you one thing we talked about before this is how it seems like a, a very serious tv show but there is a lot of a, a lot of funny stuff going on there's a lot of laughs in there the comedy is so so good in yeah. this show. It's just so on point. Uh, th- there's a really funny scene. Well, the whole thing with the office, um, them finding the office, is just it's hilarious. So well, the phone. The f- there's nothing in there except a phone, and it's ringing, and they hang up. <laughs> said it was probably for McNulty, but uh, th- there's th- the funniest part of this episode for me was uh, Rawls finds out that the um, 
the murder, uh, the, the witness's murder has hit the headlines. Yep. He's pissed off at McNulty, as usual, <laughs> but he's more pissed off than ever. And he goes out and says that, that this fucker is not coming back. I don't care. He's not coming back to this department. And he just throws all this shit <laughs> off his desk, uh, to which point we realize it's not, uh, that's not his desk. Yeah, Lambda said, that's, yeah. that's not McNulty's desk. <laughs> I just thought. So good. So yeah, just remember, yeah, um, Freeman was actually mentioned, uh, was described by Daniels as a cuddly house cat. Oh, that was it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, which <laughs> he is not a cuddly house cat. Because I mean, when you when you see Freeman, he's he's got his glasses on with the strings attached. He's wearing like a like a tank top. Yeah, he? he's, he's pretty much someone's dad, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's such such a dude. <laughs> yeah, man. So but that's kind of it. Any other thoughts? Um, I don't think so. I think. It's a good place to finish. Oh, I can't wait for the next one. Nice. This is Ben from at Top Film Tip on Twitter, based in London. My favourite character on the first series of The Wire, I think, is probably Kima. She's the first gay character I'd seen uh, depicted in a uh, mainstream TV series whose um, whole role and place in the show didn't revolve entirely around her sexuality. She's just like anyone else. A full character with a role to play, and indeed the entire series comes to a, a head around um, around her. Um, but her sexuality is just really neither here nor there, just like with any other character in the show. And that was a voicemail that was left on our burner phone. Yes, we have an untraceable burner phone that you too can call and leave us a message. Just head to our Facebook or our Twitter page to get the number. And you can call us from anywhere you are in the world. When you do ring in, please let us know your name, location, your Twitter account, and a short and super sweet message. This week, we still want to know who your favourite character is in season one and why. And we'll play out the best messages in the next episode. Right, that's it for this week. Join us next week where we'll be watching season one, episode three, The Buys. Please remember to join us on iTunes and subscribe to us there and leave us a fantastic review. We're looking forward to reading them all. And if you want to chat with us, you can send us a Facebook or Twitter message. We're at The Wire Stripped. We're also on Instagram. Or you can email us. It's burner at thewirestripped.com. Thank you so much to our fantastic guests who have taken the time to talk to us about their love of The Wire. And huge thanks to Tom, our editor and producer, and the man who makes this sound so good. What the fuck did I do? Yeah, we also want to thank Izzy Lawrence for the logo and all the graphics that she's made for us on the show. And last but not least, thanks to Martin and Sam from the Song by Song podcast who made our theme song, uh, that brilliant version of Way Down in the Hole, especially for this show. And we'll be talking more about them in a future bonus episode. So stay tuned, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Bye.